office in Murray Hill, New Jersey, 20 miles from New York City. Members of Shockley's solid-state physics group, they had made the crucial breakthrough a week before. Using little more than a tiny nondescript slab of the element germanium, a thin plastic wedge, and a shiny strip of gold foil, they had boosted an electrical signal almost a hundredfold. Soft-spoken and cerebral, Bardeen had come up with the key ideas, which were quickly and skillfully implemented by the genial Bratton, a salty, silver-haired man who liked to tinker with equipment almost as much as he loved to gab. Working shoulder-to-shoulder for most of the prior month, day after day except on Sundays, they had finally coaxed their curious-looking gadget into operation. That Tuesday morning, while Bardeen completed a few calculations in his office, Bratton was over in his laboratory with a technician making last-minute checks on their amplifier. Around one edge of a triangular plastic wedge, he had glued a small strip of gold foil, which he carefully slid along this edge with a razor blade. He then pressed both wedge and foil down into the dull gray germanium surface with a makeshift spring fashioned from a paper clip. Less than an inch high, this delicate contraption was clamped clumsily together by a U-shaped piece of plastic resting upright on one of its two arms. Two copper wires, soldered to edges of the foil, snaked off to batteries, transformers, and oscilloscope, and other devices needed to power the gadget and assess its performance. Occasionally, Bratton paused to light a cigarette and gazed through the blinds on the window of his clean, well-equipped lab. Stroking his mustache, he looked out across a baseball diamond on the spacious rural campus to a wooded ridge of the Wachung Mountains, worlds apart from the cramped, dusty laboratory he had occupied in New York City before the war. Slate-colored clouds stretched off to the horizon. A light rain began to fall. At 45, Bratton had come a long way from his years as a roughneck kid growing up in the Columbia River Basin. As a sharpshooting teenager, he had helped his father grow corn and raise cattle on the family farm in Tenasket, Washington, close to the Canadian border. Following three horses and a harrow in the dust, he often joked, was what made a physicist out of me. Bratton's interest in the subject was sparked by two professors at Whitman College, a small liberal arts college in the southeastern corner of the state. It carried him through graduate school at Oregon and Minnesota to a job in 1929 at Bell Labs, where he had remained, happy to be working at the best industrial research laboratory in the world. Bardeen, a 39-year-old theoretical physicist, could hardly have been more different. Often lost in thought, he came across as very shy and self-absorbed. He was extremely parsimonious with his words, parceling them out softly in a deliberate monotone, as if each were a precious gem never to be squandered. Whispering John, some of his friends called him. But whenever he spoke, they listened. To many, he was an oracle. Raised in a large academic family, the second son of the dean of the University of Wisconsin Medical School, Bardeen had been intellectually precocious. He grew up among the ivied dorms and the sprawling frat houses lying the shores of Lake Mendota near downtown Madison, 
the state capital. Entering the university at 15, he earned two degrees in electrical engineering and worked a few years in industry before heading off to Princeton in 1933 to pursue a Ph.D. in physics. In the fall of 1945, Bardeen took a job at the Bell Labs, then winding down its wartime research program and gearing up for an expected post-war boom in electronics. He initially shared an office with Bratton, who had been working on semiconductors since the early 1930s, and soon became intrigued by these curious materials, whose electrical properties were just beginning to be understood. Poles apart temperamentally, the two men became fast friends, often playing a round of golf together at the local country club on weekends. Shortly after lunch that damp December day, Bardeen joined Bratton in his laboratory. Outside, the rain had changed to snow, which was beginning to accumulate. Shockley arrived about ten minutes later, accompanied by his boss, acoustics expert Harvey Fletcher, and Bell's research director, Ralph Bowne a tall, broad-shouldered man fond of expensive suits and fancy bow ties. The brass, thought Bardeen, a little contemptuously, using a term he had picked up from wartime work with the Navy. Certainly these two executives would appreciate the commercial promise of this device. But could they really understand what was going on inside this shiny slab of germanium? Shockley might be comfortable rubbing elbows and bantering with the higher-ups, but Bardeen would rather be working on the physics he loved. After a few words of explanation, Bratton powered up his equipment. The others watched the luminous spot that was racing across the oscilloscope screen jump and fall abruptly as he switched the odd contraption in and out of the circuit using a toggle switch. From the height of the jump... They could easily tell it was boosting the input signal many times whenever it was included in the loop, and yet there wasn't a single vacuum tube in the entire circuit. Then, borrowing a page from the Bell history books, Bratton spoke a few impromptu words into a microphone. They watched the sudden look of surprise on Bound's bespeckled face as he reacted to the sound of Bratton's gravelly voice booming in his ears through the headphones. Bound passed him to Fletcher who shook his head in wonder shortly after putting them on. For Bell Telephone Laboratories, it was an archetypal moment. More than 70 years earlier, a similar event had occurred in the attic of a boarding house in Boston, Massachusetts, when Alexander Graham Bell uttered the words, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. In the weeks that followed, however, Shockley was torn by conflicting emotions. The invention of the transistor, as Bardeen and Bratton's solid-state amplifier soon came to be called, had been a magnificent Christmas present for his group, and especially for Bell Labs, which had staunchly supported their basic research program. But he was chagrined to have had no direct role in this crucial breakthrough. My elation with the group's success was tempered by not being one of the inventors, he recalled many years later. I experienced frustration that my own personal efforts, started more than eight years before, had not resulted in a significant inventive contribution of my own. Growing up in Palo Alto and Hollywood, 
the only son of a well-to-do mining engineer and his Stanford-educated wife, Bill Shockley had been raised to consider himself special, a leader of men, not a follower. His interest in science was stimulated during his boyhood by a Stanford professor who lived in the neighborhood. It flowered at Caltech, where he majored in physics before heading east in 1932 to seek a Ph.D. at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. There he dived headlong into the wonderland world of quantum mechanics, where particles behave like waves and waves like particles, and began to explore how streams of electrons trickle through crystalline materials, such as ordinary table salt. Four years later, when Bell Labs lifted its Depression-era freeze on new employees, the cocky young Californian was the first new physicist hired. With the encouragement of Mervyn Kelly, then Bell's research director, Shockley began seeking ways to fashion a rugged, solid-state device to replace the bulky, unreliable switches and amplifiers commonly used in phone equipment. His familiarity with the weird quantum world gave him a decided advantage in this quest. In late 1939, he thought he had come up with a good idea to stick a tiny bit of weathered copper screen inside a piece of semiconductor. Although skeptical, Bratton helped him build this crude device early the next year. It proved to be a complete failure. Far better insight into the subtleties of solids was needed, and much purer semiconductor materials, too. World War II interrupted Shockley's efforts, but wartime research set the stage for major breakthroughs in electronics and communications once